And obviously the teachers at school would just be like, oh, just keep making things or keep using these materials and let's see where you go. And, and you kind of want, you know, after being spoon fed in school or in college, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck in a rut. But having seen her entire show, it kind of made me realize I had, you know, my whole life to get better as an artist. From our Carter, this is The Bigger Picture, an inside look at the businesses that make the art world work and the stories behind the people that shape them. In this episode, we hear how artist and head of research and design at Alonza Kaim Fine Art in Mayfair, Maggie Williams, is busy tearing pages from and rewriting the Iliad for her most recent work and shares that for her, appeal in art has a lot to do with seeing the beauty in ugly. So let, let's go back and um, begin at the beginning. So you were 12 or 13 and your sister Liz took you to the Saatchi Gallery. And up until then, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had no connection to art. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, so I had no tangible connection other than kind of enjoying art classes at school. Um, so Liz took me to Saatchi Gallery when, yeah, like you said, when I was 12 or 13, back when it was at the County Hall on South Bank. And I just remember being very, very impressed. Um, you know, I'd walk into um, like an oil-filled room, which was by Richard Wilson. I remember it being like deadly silent, you know, only X amount of people were allowed in at any one time. And um, it was quite nice feeling that you were kind of given the room to experience something. And despite the, the smell of the oil, you kind of had the time to contemplate kind of the room you're in or kind of drift off. And um, I remember being loaded with so many questions like, oh, God, is this is this room filled to the bottom with oil? Like, why has he done this? Can, <laughs> can I touch it? Do I want to touch it? Um, so that was probably my first immersive experience, um, which was completely different to just, you know, looking at a painting. And then obviously in that show, you also had other YBAs like Marcus Harvey and he had a handprint portrait of um, Myra Hindley. Oh, wow. Um, So that was quite striking because obviously it's quite a prominent figure that's been in like the news since, I don't know, as I remember as a kid. And then, um, you know, it wasn't even all the big works as well. It was kind of the smaller works like hidden, I say hidden away, but just I get hidden amongst all the noise. Like there's one of Damien Hirst with the dead head that really got my attention. And it's a photo of him next to a severed head in a morgue. And I don't know, as a 12, 13 year old, I thought that was a, pretty cool <laughs> could you appreciate the the subtext in harvey's portrait of hindley at that age do you think um i'm not what sure what did it mean I, to you at that age i don't know if i really understood the weight of it i, I remember the scale of it you know hitting me first like it was like a huge canvas and then kind of noticing all the individual handprints making up this um like chilling image um, I knew it was intended to shock, but I don't think I really realised until a bit later when I was told it was made of children's handprints. Um, that's when it kind of, it was less shock and just more, you know, when you feel something drop in your stomach. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and, and would you say from that point on, art took on a new meaning for you after that experience? Did it change significantly your view, your perspective, your feelings towards it? Oh, absolutely. I think um, experiencing the YBAs was a real turning point. I hadn't really been exposed to art like that before. 
Um, you know, art to me before was drawing or painting whatever props the school had or, you know, like fashioning clay bowls or cups to bring home to mum and dad and put in the windowsill or something. Um, and at school, you know, I'd only really grown up with, you know, reproductions of Dali that have been beaten by the sun above like the... <laughs> yeah, faded. Yeah, exactly. Just remember thinking, I can kind of make that out, that image. Or, you know, passing the odd poster in the school hallway, um, which I later learned was like a Manet painting or something. So, yeah, the YBAs were a breath of fresh air. So your sense of art essentially changes forever. Yep. And over the following years, you find yourself inspired by, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Jenny Savile and Kate Maguire? Yes, indeed. Describe what drew you to their work exactly. So with Jenny Savile, um, I felt her portrayal of the ugly is like really fascinating and, and strangely quite beautiful. You know, you've got these like voluptuous women, these huge heart carcasses like hung from the ceiling in her canvases and these kind of portraits that she um, made from you know her morgue series and even if I didn't see all of them in the flesh they almost had like a a glistening quality to them and the scale of her work really impressed me too you know her her brush strokes felt really thick and they felt really meaningful so it wasn't just like I don't know just making a painting for the sake of it it was just like each stroke just meant something it meant like you know this red really is brought out a bit more than something next to it and yeah the the colors were really rich and the fleshy tones just made her paintings really real that makes sense really visceral about them yeah exactly it's kind of like you 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 can't not look away (laughs) it almost feels like her work is 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 in no way uh, filtered it's all very direct yeah exactly and it's so it's so truthful as well so it's kind of you know, with the voluptuous women, a lot of them are kind of more self-portraits and she'll hold herself at different angles, like the most unflattering angle. It's kind of like an anti-beauty campaign. But <laughs> I remember, yeah, as a, as a teenager and growing up as a, you know, as a girl, you kind of, every little lump on your body you're terrified about. And then just to see this, you're like, oh my God, this is like a real woman. Like, it's not really that disgusting. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I can imagine that would be really important at that age as well, when we're all discovering ourselves and discovering what it means to be beautiful in many different ways. Yeah, exactly. And and Maguire kind of, she did that but with a different kind of uh, media. She's like fallen bird feathers, which, you know, individually are quite delicate and very beautiful. But, you know, she kind of hoarded numbers of them and transformed them into like jarring, kind of almost ethereal creatures. So they were quite... I don't know, I, I would say they're quite similar because the end product of Maguire's works, you see these, it's really difficult to describe, you see these like curvy, like I said, jarring creatures that are, are kind of a little bit disgusting. Mm, I so I think it like Yeah, exactly. So I, I feel like the transformation of her materials was pretty inspiring as well. It wasn't just paint that she was using. She had, I, I wouldn't say like a mundane object, but you know, she just transformed another material. Now, around the time you were in college, so let's fast forward a little bit, you discovered Louise Bourgeois, and it wasn't just her work, but her story that you connected with. Tell us how you connected with her story exactly. Yeah, so Louise Bourgeois wasn't really properly discovered until she was 70, and um, that Tate retrospective really gave me the opportunity to explore, you know, her lifetime's work. Now, I was was young, impatient, artist-to-be, um, you know, constantly, already constantly questioning kind of 
their artistic worth. And I was already frustrated I hadn't found my own voice or thing yet. Um, and obviously the teachers at school would just be like, oh, I'll just keep making things or keep using these materials and let's see where you go. And and you kind of want, you know, after being spoon fed at, in school or in college, you're kind of you're kind of stuck in a rut. But having seen her entire show, it kind of made me realize I had, you know, my whole life to get better as an artist and to create. Yeah, exactly. To explore different themes and maybe or, you know, maybe not settle on like a signature style because her works, they're so different. There's like different periods. It's not like you have one thing, you kind of stick with it. You might have one main theme, but it was incredible to see how she explored that topic in so many different media. It kind of gave me hope and time. Do you, do you see, you know, from where you're sitting, do you see thinking about these artists, bourgeois, Savile and uh, uh, Maguire, do you think there's a thread of disgust or macabre that you're drawn to? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always had a bit of a morbid curiosity. Um, let's just say I get as much enjoyment from, you know, looking at specimens and jars as much as I do seeing an artwork in a gallery or a museum. Now, you no, your work uh, as an artist uh, yourself, um, there's one in particular that, that I found really, really fascinating. It's called Mr. and Miss Olympia. So you took famous bodybuilders and made needlepoint portraits of these men and women in various poses. Um, how did you arrive at an idea like that? Um, as you could probably tell so far, um, I've always been interested in kind of the extremes. And in this case, it was, you know, the extremities of the human body. Um, previous projects at like school and college, you know, involved like morbid obesity and things like that. And I can't remember how, but by chance I just flicked onto Generation Iron one day. Um, so Generation Iron is a documentary about two rivals, um, Phil Heath and Kai Green, competing for the title of Mr. Olympia. And I don't know what it was, but I just couldn't look away from the screen. It was, you know, a world that was completely un unknown to me, you know, the world of bodybuilding. And it was just so incredible just watching the extremes they push their bodies to and I just knew I needed to explore this further. What made you choose Needlepoint exactly? So you see that this documentary Generation I'm for the first time you're kind of immediately drawn to the extremes as you've said but why something so dare I say twee as Needlepoint to represent this? <laughs> um, well since the days of kind of discovering Louise Bourgeois I really wanted to use textile as a medium but I just didn't know how to really get into it um in kind of art school you're kind of taught not to be too crafty because you're verging in that area rather than being more conceptual and arty um but I think it was you know like you said needlepoint is so twee and it's so feminine um traditionally anyway so the idea of crossing something so like masculine as bodybuilding with something so feminine as needlepoint just seemed like perfect contrast so started from there so did you learn that the the process of needlepoint for that particular project or were you familiar with it before had you had experience or was that part and parcel of the process learning that as you went along oh, i was definitely um learning it as i went along so the oh. first one of phil heath um that was my first ever cross stitch and i think i was just Your very first very ever lucky. cross stitch yeah <laughs> i hadn't even kind of you know, some people start off doing like a nice little animal or like a star. I, I just went full, full in. Right in at the deep end. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up just kind of using more of like a, 
I guess like a head on, you know, taking the image, converting it to 8-bit and then kind of sitting in John Lewis, which was like the nearest haberdashery like to work or something on my lunch break, um, sitting there and colour matching all the threads to like these eight pixels going, I hope this will do. And then just starting there kind of blindly and it just worked perfectly. So I was very lucky. Wow. So take the 8-bit image, find out where the colours are and then match that to threads individually. That yeah. happens before you have to. I mean, that. I mean, that, anyone who's listening who's familiar with needlepoint, that strikes, that probably strikes them as being quite obvious. But to those, to the uninitiated, that sounds like quite a lengthy process, actually. Yeah, it took many hours of kind of, let's just call it research um, before I could actually get started. And <laughs> research. It, yeah, it was really terrifying, actually, because as you, as I progressed and kind of learned whilst doing each cross stitch, um, I ended up doing kind of black and white. They were the hardest, so it was choosing kind of eight shades of grey. And when you see it as a kind of final piece as a cross stitch, it it works and you can kind of see the the grades of colour. But when you've got eight different shades of grey all next to each other, you have no idea which one you've just picked up and used. And oh it's not like... Yeah, exactly. It's not like the... Um, so the the ADA, I think it's called ADA, the, the kind of material that I cross-stitched on wasn't printed or anything with the design. So I was kind of doing it by eye with like the pixelated A4 piece of paper next to me, like as a reference. Wow. I mean, what was the scale of something this like? How many pieces did you did, did you explore in total that made up the project? I did 12 in total and they're about, um, God, I've almost forgotten now like say 20 centimeters in diameter. Um, it must have taken quite a long time. Yeah. So for, I think the first four I did, I decided to do the the bodies and for some reason, fill in the background with black as well. And they take about 60 hours. Wow. Um, and then I started playing with kind of pixelating the images and seeing, you know, kind of taking away some of the contours and seeing what that left me with really. So fast forward to today, and if I'm not mistaken, your your most recent work could be described as tearing pages out of the Iliad, <laughs> which yeah. is entitled Sacrilege, <laughs> which is a little bit tongue in cheek. So how did you arrive at this idea? It's very, very different to the one we've just discussed. So um, I read the Iliad for the first time about two, three years ago. And, you know, my mind was actually blown. I've, I've read it a number of times since. And I guess... Uh, what really intrigued me was how integral, you know, the Olympic gods were to every action or inaction of, you know, the mortals below. And um, I started to think about our relationship with God or, you know, gods now versus then and how important they are now. But how it's almost like they were so integral to everyday living kind of back, um, let's say, well, when this was written, well, it's said to be written down about seven, 800 BC. And um, yeah, I just wondered how much of the book would remain if I removed any dialogue and, you know, how it would read if, you know, the Spartans or the Trojans were held accountable for their own actions. So throughout the whole epic, you've got the gods constantly interfering with all the actions. You know, if, if a Spartan takes one step, that's because the God has willed them to or has kind of persuaded them to do that. It's not like they have their own um, autonomy. And there are so many instances where either side blame the gods above for what's happening. So, you know, if if they're having a bad day and 
loads of their soldiers are getting killed, they're kind of, oh, you know, the gods are against us today. It's not because of their strategic planning or anything. Um, so I wondered what would happen if they didn't have this excuse and are kind of, you know, held accountable. And what have you uncovered? Is it, is it beginning to emerge in front of your eyes that the story is, is that much more different in tone? Does it feel, dare I say, contemporary if you remove this idea of the men or the men or the gods in the sky above? How does, yeah. how does that change the story? It's um, it's actually quite, quite the, the tone gets lowered quite a lot. It's quite disturbing, a little bit pitiful. Um, I mean, there's so much terrible decision making and just like mindless violence you know the men are like pursuing things for the sake of it regardless of you know the devastation it's already brought um kind of before and that will continue to to come and um I think I also realized how astonishing it was how little dialogue women have too so when you take out the godly dialogue you know Athena Aphrodite you know they actually speak quite a lot um, but when you remove any of their dialogue, you know, there's there's nothing almost, you know, Helen, who is the reason behind the Trojan War, um, she, she doesn't speak more than seven times in the whole epic. And, you know, it's, a, it's a, quite a chunky book. <laughs> um, and what she speaks about as well is just, you know, it's always to do with, you know, her male counterpart. You know, it, it definitely wouldn't pass the uh, the Beckdale test. <laughs> <laughs> But your your work um, collectively has been described as reappropriation. So this is where you're taking ordinary mundane objects, let's say, and you change them in some way. Mm. So I'd, I'd be interested just to learn about really how you approach a project in general. Uh, what's your motivation, and do you set out to convey an idea, or or does this unfold as, as you as you begin? How does that work? Um, yeah, it's quite a difficult question because. I think most of the time I don't realise I've actually started a new project. I um, I've even asked a few people, and they they say, yeah, you don't, you just seem to like fall into them. Um, you don't have, yeah, I'm definitely going to do this, and it's like A B C. I just kind of one day, maybe the idea pops into my head, or I've had ideas floating around, and one just takes hold of me more than the others. Um, but generally, for me, the the need to to make things and the process of making them is probably the most important aspect of my work um that's why a lot of my works are series or project based I kind of crave the creation uh, process of creation or taking idea and objects you know breaking it down or or turning on its heads I feel like the more you play or experiment the kind of the more avenues you create and I kind of love getting lost in this like almost never-ending network until one day it kind of clicks and all comes together Mm, it is fascinating actually i mean this notion of being in a state of play that's triggered something in my mind john cleese the the comedian who we're all well familiar with has spent the last 25 years or more talking about being in creative modes and he describes this creative mode as a state of being open where you can um, essentially be curious without a sense of pressure do you feel this describes what you like about being an artist being in that state of play do you think that's what it is yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the little link to John Cleese. It's um, <laughs> it, it's definitely all about play. I mean, I think some artists maybe think too seriously about their works, or maybe that's just me. Um, I feel like it's all about play, experimentation, you know, the joy and the, the process. And I always feel like the final piece is almost 
you know, like a happy accident. It's fascinating. In some ways, your life as an artist is, I mean, could be considered quite different to the work you do at Alonza Keem Fine Art. Um, as the head of research and design, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll be taking an investigative and f- almost forensic view of art. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess um, you could say it's the process I enjoy. So it's quite similar to my own artistic practice. You know, I'm going at great lengths to investigate something. I'm just doing it in another medium, which in this case is establishing provenance. Um, so at the gallery, we we try and do that as our way of uh, carrying out due diligence on an artwork that we're either buying or an artwork um, that has been requested by a client and just making sure it's all kind of correct. Um, and with us, provenance starts with the artist. So it's you know hugely important to prove that the work we're dealing with is by the hand of, say, you know, Monet or Chagall. Um, and because a lot of the works we deal in are made pre-war, there's always a concern that the artwork could have been looted during the war. So it's kind of imperative that you check against um, like a database of missing works or stolen works, which is where the ALR art loss register comes in quite handy. Um, just just to be sure that, you know, it hasn't been missing or stolen at any time. And it's kind of like scot-free and you're okay to, to touch the artwork. Um, I mean, even if it wasn't made pre-war, it's, it's quite important to ensure that the details are right anyway. So I, I've had concerns before even an artwork where, you know, I was handed a fact sheet and no matter what I did, I was, you know, going through the exhibition history and the literature and I just couldn't find, like the artwork didn't match up with the one listed in the fact sheet. Um, in the end, it was absolutely fine, but it was just somewhere down the line, someone else's, you know, misattributed details of one artwork for another. So I just had to swap them back over and kind of, yeah, correct those again. So in terms of that, it's, it just provides us and, you know, clients peace of mind when we we buy an artwork. I can kind of see, actually, now where you're coming from, that it's almost the two are connected, your, your work as an artist and your work within the gallery, the two are connected by this notion of being immersed in something and taking a deep dive into whether that's an idea that you're exploring or a work that you're looking to basically learn about and build up that picture that's an intrinsic part of the work itself and the value of that work. Exactly, exactly. And can that take quite a long time sometimes? Yeah, so sometimes... I mean, to what lengths would, would you, do you go to when seemingly they could be quite broad in scope as to far, how, how far you would research something? Yeah, it, it's about having the time as well. It's um, So if we're lucky, we'll get an artwork in and a lot of the stuff has already been cross-checked. So you'll have kind of scans of, um, you know, the exhibition catalogues that's been in, etc., um, other times I'll have to go to the library and, and do it myself. And it's quite difficult because a lot of the works that we deal in, you know, are, are predominantly French. So, you know, if they're in like a really vague exhibition from like 1912, um, although the libraries in London are great, you know, sometimes you just can't get that exact exhibition catalogue and you have to try other routes um, to find that information. You know, hopefully it might have been published online for free or something or yeah, it, it can sometimes take, you know, half a day to like weeks just to find this one thing, which is, you know, every step is quite important. Wow, weeks. Yeah. So onto, onto what, where, you're, uh, where you're at within the gallery at the moment more recently. So you've actually mounted a new exhibition, which if I'm not mistaken, focuses, I guess, less on the canvas and what's on the canvas and more on the artist sitting opposite the canvas creating the work. Is that correct? Tell us about that. 
Yes, so we've got a great photography exhibition um, at the moment at the gallery. It's called Modern Masters Through the Lens. And um, you can actually see inside the studios and sometimes the minds of some of the greatest artists of the 20th century. Um, the VR tour was made live yesterday, by the way. So if you nip over to our website, you can have a little um, immersive tour of the ground floor and upper floor galleries. And, you know, the Modern Masters show has some incredible shots. You know, there's a, a Rizzo photograph of Dali where Dali's holding up some magnifying glasses to kind of distort his own really expressive face and you've got the iconic mustache in there as well it's it's so simple but it just captures everything that's just Dali um and there's also a, a photo of Francis Bacon sitting you know completely unperturbed in the chaos around him in his studio and you know it provides such kind of personal insight to to how he worked as an artist and you know his his collecting habits as well he he seemed to hoard so many things and was happy to just to just sit amongst these piles and and you know versus what you see as a, a final piece on the canvas it, it's just incredible and a little bit kind of it makes me wince a little bit as well because it just makes me feel uncomfortable to look at but that's you know that's what art should do it should make you kind of you know feel happy or uncomfortable it you know promotes a feeling so three questions to finish. Oil or watercolour? Oh, uh, definitely oil. Pencil or charcoal? Pencil because it's less messy. <laughs> Cubism or impressionism? I would have to go for impressionism because uh, that technically accounts for, you know, the likes of Van Gogh and Signac and Toulouse-Lautrec. <laughs> Maggie Williams, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Modern Masters Through the Lens exhibition can be viewed online via a virtual reality tour in the past exhibitions area at alonzakaim.com. You can follow and subscribe to The Bigger Picture wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about this episode or to reach out to us directly, please visit alcarta.com.